Good morning. Turn with me to Romans, the end of chapter 9. We're reading um, Romans 9, verse 30 through chapter 10, verse 4. What shall we say then? That Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it, that is, a righteousness that is by faith. But that Israel, who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness, did not succeed in reaching that law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as though it were by works. They have stumbled over the stumbling stone. As it is written, Behold, I am laying a Zion, a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. And whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Mallory, <clears throat> and uh, as she just read, we're continuing our sermon series in the book of Romans as we gather for the first time in 2021, and as John just prayed, um, even just continuing our sermon series like this as we start a new year and everything, just continuing to work our way through a book of the Bible consecutively is one of the ways that we express our, our confidence and our hope that the, the one thing we can count on as we go into a new year is, is God. And uh, the one thing that we can rest in is his word. And so we just continue to um, work our way through the book of the Bible that we're working our way through in Romans, um, just to be reminded even of that um, as we gather together for the first time in this new year. And so, um, yeah, we find ourselves at the end of Romans 9, um, and we find ourselves specifically in this, we're continuing this section of the book of Romans that runs from chapter 9 through chapter 11. And so over the last two weeks, John has been walking us through the first part of chapter 9, dealing with God's sovereign election, uh, how God before creation sovereignly chose certain people to be saved, not because of any merit or in them, um, anything that they would do, but simply because of his sovereign choice. And we've been looking at how that should humble us and should cause us to worship, Um, but especially here in the context of Romans, how God's sovereign election should give us great confidence that God will keep his promises, that his word has not failed. Because his point here in chapter 9 has has been that from Israel's standpoint, everything that Paul has said so far in Romans could almost make you think the opposite. That in Romans 1 to 8, um, we've seen this beautiful picture of the gospel. that, That everyone, both Jew and Gentile, is guilty before God. But that God in his great mercy sent his son Jesus to be the substitutionary sacrifice that would satisfy God's wrath. And now, through faith in Jesus, everyone, Jew or Gentile, can be justified or declared righteous by God. And those who are justified will be sanctified. They'll grow in living righteous lives, living like who we are through the Spirit. And then one day, we'll be glorified and our fallen bodies and this this fallen creation will be restored and made perfectly righteous forever. And and nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord, which means that all of this is guaranteed for those who are united to Jesus by faith. 
And so that's what we saw in the first eight chapters of the book. But, but all of that raises the question then, how does all that fit with the whole Old Testament and what God has been promising to Israel in the Old Testament? Like, weren't they supposed to be the special people of God? Like, didn't God give them the patriarchs and the covenants and the law and the temple where his glorious presence dwelt in their midst and ultimately the Messiah who's supposed to be their king? Like, how does the gospel that Paul just spent eight chapters laying out about Jews and Gentiles being equally guilty before God and equally justified through Jesus, how does that not contradict everything that the whole Old Testament set up? Did everything that God promised Israel fail? Or, or did Israel fail and, and void all the promises that God has made? Or is God turning his back on all those promises and doing something completely different? Because if, if any of those cases are true, then what confidence can we have in the gospel of Romans 1 to 8? And so that's what Romans 9 to 11 is responding to here. And, and so like what we've been seeing so far, the main point is, no, the word and promises of God have not failed what is happening is exactly what God sovereignly elected to happen from before creation and what he's sovereignly bringing to pass, just like he promised that he would. And the gospel of Jews and Gentiles both being saved through faith in Jesus is not in conflict with the Old Testament. It's exactly what the Old Testament said would happen. So that's the last two weeks in Romans 9. Now here, starting in verse 30, and then really even going into most of chapter 10, Paul's going to address a misunderstanding that could easily creep in based on what we saw the last couple of weeks. And, and you may even be feeling it yourself after the last couple of weeks. So it would be really easy in light of what Paul has said so far in Romans 9 to end up with this fatalistic mentality that it doesn't really matter what you do then. Like if God is sovereign in salvation, those whom he elects will be saved. Those whom he does not won't. So it doesn't really matter what you do or how you respond to all this. Like that could easily be the way that, that you respond to what we've seen the last couple of weeks. But that's not true. Like how you respond to the gospel matters. More specifically, how you respond to Jesus matters. It mattered for the Gentiles, it mattered for Israel, and it matters for you. And so that's what we're going to see in our passage this morning. And, and we'll see it in the next part of chapter 10 as well. Yes, God is sovereign in salvation, and those who believe are those he has chosen, but your response to the gospel matters. That's why when we talk about the four-part outline of the gospel, we include God, man, Christ, and response. You must hear the gospel, and you must respond to it rightly in order to be saved. And, and what we're going to see is that, in general, the Gentiles did, and in general, Israel did not. But the whole point of Romans 9 to 11 then is that this is not a failure of God's word. It's part of God's plan of salvation from the beginning. It's a fulfillment of God's word. And to think anything else is to misunderstand God's plan of salvation. But at the same time, and this is where John's point from last week, the mystery of God's sovereignty and man's responsibility comes into play. At the same time, Israel's failure to respond rightly is not a failure of God's word, it's part of God's sovereign plan, but it is a failure on Israel's part. Like they're, they're guilty for not responding rightly. They, they had every advantage. They should have understood, yet they stumbled. But what that shouldn't cause us to do is to look down on Israel. And what we're going to see is, is that like Paul, it should cause us to grieve for them 
to pray for them. And it should also take, cause us to take care that we don't fall into the same error. Because like we've seen over and over again throughout Romans, salvation doesn't depend on nationality, but on faith. And so everyone, Jew or Gentile, is capable of ending up in either group. So in our passage this week, we're going to really briefly touch on the Gentiles' right response to the gospel, um, and, and then we're going to spend most of our time looking at Israel's wrong response, because that's what Paul does here in the text. He's going he's gonna to come back to the right response in the next part of chapter 10, which we'll look at next week, so you have to come back for that. Um, but this week, you can see uh, where we're going on your handout here. Uh, we're going to see two main mistakes that Israel made in their pursuit of righteousness. And then we're going to look at one thing that Israel ultimately missed that led to the mistakes that they made. And then we're going to think through some implications of all of that for our lives today. So let's look at verse 30 and 31 here to start with, and we'll see how Paul sets all this up. So, so verse 30, chapter 9. What shall we say then? So then here is the key word. Paul is asking, in light of what I just said in chapter 9, what are, what are we to make of this? What conclusion should we draw? And so we're going to have to just back up real quick to see this because we just barely were able to touch on these verses last week. And so back up really fast into the end of chapter 9, starting kind of in verse 22 here. Like this is what Paul has just said to remind us here. Verse 22 says, What if God, desiring to show his wrath, to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he's prepared beforehand for glory, even us whom he has called, not, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. As indeed he said, says in Hosea, those who are not my people, I will call my people. And her who is not beloved, I will call beloved. In the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there they will be called sons of the living God. And Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, though the number of the sons of Israel be as the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will be saved. For the Lord will carry out his sentence upon the earth fully and without delay. And as Isaiah predicted, if the Lord of hosts had not left us offspring, we would have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. So if you remember last week, John talked about the, the vessels of wrath and the vessels of mercy and how this is an illustration of the freedom that God has as the potter to make whatever he wants out of the clay. And so the point, though, that we need to see that leads into our passage this week, though, is this. In, in verse 24, um, Paul unpacks who these vessels of mercy are. And so you might remember this from last week. Like, do you see there? Paul says they're not only from the Jews, they're also from the Gentiles. And then he says this is exactly what the Old Testament had said would happen. And he quotes from two Old Testament prophets, first from Hosea and then from Isaiah, and each of these prophets is showing how the vessels of mercy are both from the Gentiles and the Jews. And so Paul uses this quotation from Hosea here to show how the Gentiles are the fulfillment of what Hosea promised. That the Gentiles were not part of God's people, but God had mercy on them and set his love on them and made them his sons. And then in verse 27, he turns his focus on Israel, like, like how have they received mercy? And, and this is just as shocking as the Hosea passage. Isaiah here says that only a remnant of Israel will be saved, and even that is only because of the Lord's mercy. Otherwise, they would have been totally destroyed like Sodom and Gomorrah. So the point in all that is that the Gentiles are vessels of mercy because they didn't deserve to be part of God's people, but he brought them in. And the Jews are vessels of mercy because Israel deserved to be destroyed but God spared a remnant. 
And all that is God's plan from before creation that he's sovereignly working out and fulfilling. And so all that's what we need to have in our mind when Paul asks this question here in verse 30. Like, what are we to make of that? And so here's the conclusion that Paul says we ought to draw in light of everything else that he's been teaching us about the gospel in Romans 1 to 8. And and so there's two parts to this here. And so pick back up here in verse 30. What shall we say then? That, first of all, the Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it. That is a righteousness that's by faith. And then second, verse 31, but that Israel who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness did not succeed in reaching that law. So just to be clear here, Paul's not saying that every Gentile has attained righteousness or that every Israel has, every Israelite has not succeeded in reaching the law. Like he's painting with a broad brush. He's generalizing here. And his point is that in general, Gentiles attained righteousness. And in general, Israel did not succeed in reaching the law. And this language here of pursuing and attaining or, or reaching They're they're racing terms, it's racing imagery. And so pursuing here is like a runner setting his sights on the finish line and then going after that goal with everything that he has. And then attaining or reaching is is making it across that finish line. It's it's reaching the goal. And so the picture here is of these Israelites, they're, they're competing hard in this race, but they end up completely missing the finish line. They get lost out on the track, and they never get to the finish line. They never finish the race. But then the Gentiles, who don't even realize that they're in a race, somehow cross the finish line and win the prize. So that's, that's what Paul says happened. Like, that's his conclusion in light of everything that he just said. So how in the world did that happen? And so this is where we need to understand what's being pursued and what was attained here um, He uses different words in both of these situations. What Paul says about the Gentiles, he repeats the word righteousness over and over and over again. In the Greek, it's actually there three times in one sentence. The Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained righteousness. That is a righteousness that is by faith. And so so the question is, what is this righteousness? And so it's, it's not just morality. Like Paul's not saying that Gentiles don't care about morality or being good people. No, the the righteousness that he's talking about here is the righteousness that we've been talking about earlier in the book of Romans, thinking back to chapters 3 to 5. It's a right standing with God. It's it's being legally declared righteous by God. It's the courtroom verdict of righteous. Like, that's what the Gentiles attained. And so, um, man, this, yeah, flip back over to chapter 3, 21, really quick. It's only a couple pages back, so you can flip over there really fast. And it's been a little while since we've been here. And so it's worth reminding ourselves because our passage this morning really echoes a lot of this part of chapter three in a lot of ways. And so just get this refreshed in your mind again before we move on. So verse 21, it says, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there's no distinction for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he'd passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Then what becomes of our boasting? It's excluded. 
By what kind of law? By a law of works? No, but by the law of faith. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Or is God the God of Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also, since God is one who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. Do we then overthrow the law by this faith? By no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. Like so, so that, that righteousness that we talked about back then, being justified by God's grace as a gift through the redemption that's in Jesus Christ and all that goes along with it, that's what happened to the Gentiles. Like they, they were justified. They were declared righteous by faith. And so the Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained that righteousness by faith. But what about Israel? And so in light of what he just said about Gentiles here, we expect Paul to compare apples to apples and say, but Israel who did pursue righteousness, but that's not exactly what he says. He says, but Israel who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness did not succeed in reaching that law. So we're going to dig into the mistakes that Israel made here in just a second, but this is important to see first. Like the contrast here is between the Gentiles not pursuing righteousness, um, but they're declared righteous by God, and Israel pursuing a law that would lead to righteousness, but not succeeding in reaching that law. And this is what raises the question that Paul's going to deal with in the rest of our passage this morning. Why is that? Like, what did they do wrong? That's the question then at the beginning of verse 32 here. And so we might be tempted to jump to some conclusions, um, but let's see how Paul answers that question. And so what we're going to see here in verses 31 to 33 is Paul's going to give us one mistake that Israel made, and then in chapter 10, verses 1 to 3, He's going to give us another mistake that Israel made. You can see this here on your handout, the two mistakes Israel made in their pursuit of righteousness. The first mistake, then, is that Israel pursued righteousness by the wrong means, by works instead of by faith. So look at verse 31 again. Um, Israel, who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness, did not succeed in reaching that law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as if it were based on works. They've stumbled over the stumbling stone. As it's written, behold, I'm laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So verses 31 and 32 here, they're a little bit hard to follow. And so again, the contrast between the Gentiles and Israel in verses 31 and, or 30 and 31 is not exactly what we expect it to be. Like since Paul said that the Gentiles weren't pursuing righteousness, we expect he's going to say that Israel was pursuing righteousness. And since he says the Gentiles attained righteousness, we expect him to say that Israel didn't succeed in reaching righteousness. Instead, when he talks about Israel, he says they were pursuing the law and they didn't succeed in reaching the law. But then since that's what he says about them, we expect that the first problem, the first mistake that Israel made is that they were pursuing the law instead of righteousness, that they were pursuing the wrong thing. But that's not exactly what Paul says. He doesn't say that their problem was that they pursued the law, but that they pursued it the wrong way. And so what Paul is saying here is that the problem for Israel was that they didn't succeed in reaching the law that would lead to righteousness. And the reason they didn't succeed in reaching the law that would lead to righteousness is because they didn't pursue it by faith, but as if it were based on works. So Israel's first mistake is that they were trying to earn by works what they could only receive by faith. And at first, that's kind of confusing because on one hand, like God gave them the law, right? And, and the law was this big list of things to do and not to do. 
it wasn't it? I mean, like, that's what we think of when we think of the law. Like, what were they supposed to think? But on the other hand, just think just for a minute about Israel's story and when God gave them the law. Like, Paul's already talked about some of this here in Romans. Remember back in Romans 4, God promised Abraham that he was going to give him more offspring than there were stars in the sky. And at this point, he doesn't give him anything to do. He just says, I'm going to do this for you. And Abraham believed God. And God said that, and, and Paul said that that right there is a clue that what matters is not sharing Abraham's DNA, but sharing Abraham's faith. And so then eventually, though, Abraham's offspring do grow, and they become the nation of Israel, and they end up in slavery in Egypt for 400 years, which God actually told Abraham was going to happen. But then God comes and delivers them out of Egypt so that they could worship him. He takes them through the Red Sea. He leads them to Mount Sinai, and God spoke to Israel from the mountain. And he told them then that he brought them out of Egypt to be his special people. And then he gave them the law. And the timing of that is intended to tell them something important. The, the law wasn't about earning the right to be God's people. Like they already were God's people because he chose them way before this point and delivered them out of slavery in Egypt to be his people and to worship him. And then God gave them the law to show them how to live like who they were. Like keeping the law was never supposed to be about earning something that they didn't have. Keeping the law was always supposed to be an act of faith that God had made them something that they could never be on their own. Like, that's why the law had all these provisions for sacrifices, for restoring their relationship with God when they failed to keep the law. Like, they were never going to be able to keep it, but, but they missed it. They thought it was the other way around. They thought they had to keep the law to earn righteousness, to earn a right standing before God. And because they pursued the law as if they could earn a verdict of righteous from God by their works. They didn't succeed in reaching that law, which meant that they didn't succeed in their pursuit of righteousness. They pursued the law by the wrong means, as if it were based on works instead of on faith. And so they didn't receive the right standing before God that they could have had if they had pursued the law by faith and lived as if their standing before God depended on God and not on them. And Paul says that in making this mistake, then, Israel stumbled over the stumbling stone. And so oh, there's, there's so much we could get into from this quotation from Isaiah here. But, but the main point is to make it even more clear that Israel's mistake is that they thought they could earn by works what they could only receive by faith. Like Isaiah says that God sovereignly placed a stone in Zion. And, and so Zion, it can just be another, another name for Jerusalem, but often it's looking beyond the physical city of Jerusalem to the new Jerusalem and the kingdom of God. And, and, and if it's not obvious here, Paul's going to quote the same verse again later in chapter 10 and make it even more clear that this stone is Jesus. And so how people respond to this stone, how they respond to Jesus is what ultimately matters. Like some people are going to stumble over him. They're going to be offended by him. But others will believe in him. And those who believe in him won't be put to shame. And so being put to shame here, it's not just being embarrassed. Though, I mean, it's kind of embarrassing when you trip over something, but that's, that's, not the, that's not the point. Like all this has final judgment or final vindication in mind. Like those who are offended and stumble are those who reject this rock. They reject Jesus, uh, this, this rock that God sovereignly placed in Zion and their stumbling is stumbling in judgment. But then those who believe are not put to shame in the sense that they're vindicated by God. They're declared righteous by God. 
And so the point is, what ultimately differentiates between one group and the other is faith in Jesus, not works. Like if you believe in Jesus, you'll be vindicated by God. You'll be declared righteous by God. If you're offended by Jesus and reject him, you'll be judged by God. And, and that's what happened to Israel. They stumbled over the stumbling stone. Like they were so convinced that they had to earn righteousness by their works that when Jesus came, he clashed with what they were pursuing and it tripped them up. Like they were offended and they rejected him. And so ultimately in this, I think what happened is they confused the path and the destination. Like the law was intended to be a path that led Israel to a destination. But they thought that the law was the destination. They thought it was the thing that they were supposed to get to. And so it's like, have you ever been to a park or a trail where there's a path that will lead you to some scenic view or some landmark or something like that. So, so imagine if somebody is following one of those paths, but they're so focused on the path that when they get to the landmark that the path was leading them to, they run like smack into it and it knocks them down. But then instead of realizing like, oh, here it is, I found it. Instead of realizing that, they get up and they're like, who put that there? unbelievable. Like, can you believe they put this thing in the path here? And, and, and so then they get up, they dust themselves off, and instead of realizing that they reached the end of their journey, instead of being excited that they found the thing that they were supposed to be making their way to on this path, they just, they, they get up, they dust themselves off, and they keep right on following the path, right past the thing that it was supposed to lead them to. And so, like, if we see that happen, we'd be like, no, you, you missed it. You missed the thing that this was supposed to lead you to. And, and that's exactly what happened to Israel. They, they pursued righteousness by the wrong means. They thought they could earn by works what they could only receive by faith. And so they stumbled over the thing that the, the, the law, that the path was supposed to lead them to. So, so that's the first mistake that they made is, is they pursued righteousness by the wrong means. They, they pursued it by works instead of by faith. Second, you can see this. Next on your handout here. Second, Israel pursued the wrong righteousness, their own instead of God's. And we see this in chapter 10, verses 1 to 3. Look at verse 1 here. It says, Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. So follow Paul's flow of thought here. He says that Israel has a zeal for God. Like they're passionate for God, but their zeal is not according to knowledge. They don't understand something important. And that lack of knowledge means that their zeal ends up being misdirected. So what is it then that they don't understand? It's here in verse three. It says they're ignorant of the righteousness of God. So here's our righteousness word again. Um, but in this case, I think Paul has an even bigger concept of the righteousness of God in mind than what we've been talking about so far. Like it, it is that, but it's even, it's even more than that. So what I think he's saying is that Israel is ignorant of just how righteous and just God is and how him declaring them righteous is their only hope. Like, they have too low a view of the righteousness of God. They're ignorant of how high the standard is. Like, they don't, they don't realize the standard is perfection. 
Like they're, they're ignorant of just how impossible it is for them to ever earn a right standing before God. They're, they're ignorant of the fact that the only way anyone can ever reach that standard is if God declares them righteous. So everything Paul's been saying about the righteousness of God in the entire book of Romans kind of rolled up into one word here. So it, like if you've been paying attention all the way through the book, you ought to have this picture of God's righteousness that is so high and so huge that it puts you in your place to where your only hope is that God will have mercy on you and, and to where you rejoice when you hear that God has made a way to declare you righteous through Jesus and to where you cling to Jesus in faith as your only hope. But, but Israel didn't understand that. They, they were ignorant of God's righteousness. They had too low a view of just how righteous God is, and so they didn't understand that they needed him to declare them righteous. And, and look what that led to then. Their ignorance of the righteousness of God led them to seek to establish their own righteousness. So their low view of the righteousness of God led to too high a view then of their own potential righteousness. Like, do you see, like, when you think the standard is only this high, you can convince yourself that you can get there. And that's what they had done. Like, they were convinced that they could be righteous enough. I mean, they had the rules, right? Like, all they had to do was follow them. And, and they had rules for what to do when they didn't follow the rules. So ultimately, their zeal became focused on that, on keeping the rules and proving themselves to be righteous which resulted then in them not submitting to God's righteousness. They weren't humbled by the impossible chasm that separated them and God. And so they weren't interested then when God provided righteousness for them in Jesus. Instead of confessing that their only hope was God declaring them righteous in Jesus and crying out for his mercy, they said, nah, we're good. We got this. We can do this on our own. And so their ignorance of God's righteousness led them to be zealous in pursuing the wrong righteousness. They, they moved the target. They focused on the wrong finish line. And so that's why they lost the race. Like they thought the goal was their own righteousness instead of God's righteousness, which led them completely off the track. And so you can see how Israel's two mistakes here are deeply connected, right? Because, because they were aiming for their own righteousness it makes complete sense then that they would think that the way to get there is by works. And so in all of that, here's what Israel ultimately missed. You can see this next on your handout. What Israel ultimately missed is that Jesus is the culmination of God's one plan of salvation for everyone who believes. We see this in verse 4. It says, For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. And so we've, we've been dancing all around this, but Paul finally spells it out for us here in verse 4. Like what, ult, what Israel ultimately missed was Jesus. They missed that he is the finish line of the race. Like that's what it means there by Jesus being the end of the law. The, the word there for end, it has both senses of it being the goal and the finish. So it's just like the finish line in a race is the goal. It's what you're aiming for. You got to get to that point and it's the end of the race, like the race is over once you cross that line, that's what Jesus is related to the law. Oh, and this is so huge. Like we can get confused because to us it sounds like the law is one thing and Jesus is something completely different. When it, when it comes to the law, we can, we can kind of sympathize with Israel in this. Like it sounds like the law is something you're supposed to do 
and it, so that you can earn righteousness. It sounds like it's based on works, but then we know that we're supposed to believe in Jesus and put our faith in Jesus, which sounds like something completely different from the law. And so we can end up thinking that God was doing one thing in the Old Testament, but now he's doing something completely different in the New Testament. That's not how we're supposed to understand the Bible at all. Like, this is why it's so important to understand the biblical storyline. Like, the Bible has one storyline. God has one plan of salvation that's unfolding all the way through. He doesn't give Adam one set of rules, and then when that fails, he gives Abraham a whole different plan, and then he gives Moses something different, and David something different, and the church something different. Like, no, it's all been one plan of salvation that God has been orchestrating from the very beginning all the way to now, all the way until the end of time. And, And that one plan of salvation has been being progressively revealed bit by bit along the way. And so God reveals some of the plan to Abraham, then a bit more to Jacob, and then a bit more to Moses and Israel at Mount Sinai, and then a bit more to David, and a bit more to the prophets, and none of it cancels out what came before or goes in a different direction than what came before. All of it has been moving in one direction the whole time. And, and do you know, hopefully you know by now, where that one direction was. Like, it was Jesus. He's the finish line. He's what everything, including the law, has been pointing to and leading to. Because he is the only way that Adam's fall can be reversed. Because he's the one who crushed the head of the serpent. He's the seed of Abraham who brings God's blessing to all nations. He's the one true Israelite who perfectly and fully lived in perfect alignment with the character and justice of God laid out in the law. He is the heir of David who will reign on his throne forever. He is the stone placed in Zion as the foundation for this new temple that all who believe in him are being built into. Like Jesus is the finish line. And so what's the result of Jesus being the culmination of God's plan of, one plan of salvation? Look at the rest of verse 4 here. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. And so Paul emphasizes three things here. You can see them on your handout. First, you can only be declared righteous through Jesus. This is what the for righteousness means. It means resulting in righteousness. Because Jesus fulfilled everything that God's one plan of salvation was leading toward, righteousness is now available through him and only through him. Just think back to what we read earlier in Romans 3. The bad news is that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Everyone, Jew and Gentile, all of us have fallen short of the perfect standard, the glory of God. And on our own, we stand guilty before God, deserving to be sentenced to death. Oh, but praise God, it doesn't stop there. The very next verse says, and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. Like Jesus' blood satisfies the wrath of God that we deserved. His blood paid the redemption price to set us free. Because of Jesus, we can be justified. We can be declared righteous as a gift. And so because Jesus is the culmination of God's one plan of salvation, righteousness is available through him and only through him. And the Jews missed this. They thought they could earn their own righteousness, but that's not possible. Like the righteousness we need being declared righteous by God is only possible and only available through Jesus. 
Second, you can only receive Jesus' righteousness by faith. That's the very end of verse 4. Jesus is the culmination of God, God's one plan of salvation for everyone who believes. Like, that's what determines whether Jesus' righteousness is credited to you or not. You can't work for it. You can't earn it. It's a gift that can only be received by faith. And, and we've talked about this before. Like, this is more than just believing in Jesus. Like, we talk about believing in Santa Claus or the Tooth Fairy. Like, it's relying on Jesus. It's putting all your hope in Jesus, trusting completely in what he did in your place and banking everything on him. And the Jews missed this too. Like they thought they could earn righteousness by works. They thought they could do enough, but that's not possible. The standard is perfection and we've all sinned. No amount of good works can ever make us righteous, but God will give you the righteousness you need if you'll just lay everything else down and stop trying to earn it any other way and put your faith in Jesus as your only hope. And third then, the, the third result of Jesus being the culmination of God's one plan of salvation is that this, this is God's plan of salvation for everyone. There's not one way of salvation for Jews and another for Gentiles. We're all equally guilty before God, and we're all justified the same way, by faith in Jesus. And that's what Israel ultimately missed. They missed that Jesus is the culmination of God's one plan of salvation for everyone who believes. And because they missed that, they thought they could earn their own righteousness by works. And because they per pursued the wrong goal by the wrong means, they missed the finish line completely. Somehow, God's completely sovereign over that. And that's part of his sovereign election. At the same time, it really mattered that Israel didn't respond rightly to Jesus. It really mattered that they pursued the wrong goal by the wrong means. So, so what do we do with all that? What implications does all that have on our lives this morning? I mean, there's a lot. Um, but let's, let's just touch quickly on five um, from this passage here this morning. Uh, five implications for our, life, um, our lives. First, First one, yeah, grieve, don't gloat when others don't respond rightly to Jesus. Um, I think this is uh, an important point to draw from this passage here. Like if Israel's failure here causes you to gloat instead of grieve, you're missing the whole point. Like Paul is not saying any of this to dog on Israel. Like his heart breaks for them. And we saw that back at the beginning of chapter 9. I mean, just listen to the emotion in, the, in verses 1 to 3 of chapter 9. It says, I'm speaking the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen according to the flesh. And you see it again in the beginning of chapter 10. Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. Like Paul is not mocking Israel in any of this. He's not looking down on them. He's not bad-mouthing them. Like it breaks his heart that they're responding to Jesus the way that they are. It causes him to grieve. And, and Paul doesn't come out and say this directly, but you can imagine in a church that's made up of Jews and Gentiles who aren't getting along, some of what was probably being said by the Gentile Christians to the Jewish Christians about their people. And so Paul is modeling for these Gentile Christians and for us what an appropriate response to all this about Israel's failure is. Like none of this should cause us to respond like, man, can you believe those people? How could they not get it? I'm, I'm glad I'm so much smarter than those guys. 
oh, and, and yes, in this passage, Paul's been specifically talking about Israel and their failure. But again, the, the divider here is not their nationality. It's their response to Jesus. And so this is even more broadly applicable than just to our attitude toward Israel's response to Jesus. If our response to anyone who hasn't put their faith in Jesus is to think we're better than them or smarter than them or we're able to figure out something they can't figure out, we're completely misunderstanding how God saved us and we're completely misunderstanding the gospel. So this passage and the, the real people around us who haven't repented and trusted in Jesus, it, it should cause us to grieve, not to pat ourselves on the back as if we're better than them. And, and so this passage should check our attitude in that way. Second implication from this passage is that, that we should pray that God would save those who've not yet responded rightly to Jesus. Like that's what Paul did for Israel in, in chapter 10, verse 1. He prayed that God would save them. And so I think, especially in light of what we've looked at over the last couple of weeks, it's really important for us to see that praying for people to be saved is not incompatible with God's sovereign election and God's sovereignty and salvation. It's the exact opposite. God's sovereign election and God's sovereignty and salvation is the only reason it makes sense to pray for people to be saved at all. Like, if God's not sovereign over salvation, why would we pray for him to save anybody? If, if that's not something he can do, it wouldn't make any sense to ask him to do it. But if God is sovereign over salvation, then the most important thing that we can do for someone who's not saved is to pray that God would save them. Like it doesn't mean that's all we should do is just pray for God to save them. John talked about last week about how God's sovereignty and salvation should give us confidence and hope to boldly share the gospel because he's mighty to save. And we'll see next week that God has sovereignly ordained certain means for people to hear the gospel and respond to Jesus. So we must do more than pray, but we had better not do less. Like only God can humble a heart that's bent on pursuing its own righteousness by its own works. Only God can cause someone to love God's righteousness more than they love their own. Only God can turn a heart that's offended by Jesus to believe in Jesus. Only God can make someone a vessel of mercy. And so like Paul, we should be praying that God would save people who have not yet put their faith in Jesus. So, so getting really practical and personal here, like if I were to ask you to give me the names of people that you're praying that God would save, could you do that? Like, are you praying for anyone regularly that God would save them? Is there anyone that God's bringing to your mind, even right now maybe, that you need to add to your prayer list and begin praying that God would save them? Uh, and, and, and this isn't something you have to do alone. Like, this is something we can do together. Share, share with your DC about people that your heart is grieved that they haven't placed their faith in Jesus. Pray together for those people. We got a prayer gathering coming up next Sunday. Share with the church about someone you're praying for so that we can all pray with you for that person. This is one of the things that should be a regular part of our individual and corporate prayer. Yes, that God would save people generally, but also for specific people that God would sovereignly stop them in their tracks and bring their dead heart to life and give them the gift of righteousness in Jesus by faith. Third implication for our lives, see your own tendency to make the same mistakes Israel did. Um, this one, is, yeah, this, this is convicting, I think, to look at the passage this way. First of all, if you're not a Christian, I, I think the most direct line is, is to you this morning. Um, if you're not a Christian, ha have any of these things been what's been holding you back? 
Like, have you never really understood God's righteousness? Maybe you've underestimated just how high the standard is, and so you thought you could reach it. You thought all you have to do is be a good person. You didn't realize you have to be perfect. So you've been pursuing the wrong righteousness. You've been pursuing your own righteousness instead of God's. Like, have you been trying to earn that right standing before God by your own works? Have you, have you thought that your good works just have to outweigh your bad or that based on all the good things you've done, surely God will just overlook the rest and let you into heaven? Uh, if that's you this morning, let me plead with you. You're pursuing the wrong goal by the wrong means and you're not gonna reach the finish line. Like, oh, I, I pray that God would give you eyes to see that even now. And for, for those of us that are Christians, it's good for us to be reminded of our tendency to slip back into these same mindsets. Like, it, it's so easy, even as Christians, to slip into trying to earn God's favor by our works. Like to think that God will be happier with us if we read our Bible more often or pray more regularly or share the gospel with this person or, or that God's disappointed in us because we failed to do those things or because we gave into temptation and we need to do some good things now to earn his favor again. Oh, and it's so easy, too, to, to slip into pursuing our own righteousness instead of resting in the righteousness that God's already credited to our account. For, for me, that tends to mean that I, my focus turns toward being concerned about what people think about me, um, doing things to impress other people. I, I've even found that how much time I spend on my phone scrolling through social media or, or just mindlessly scrolling, looking for something new that I don't want to miss out on is directly related to this as well. Like, Tony Rinke, who wrote the book, 12 Ways Your Phone's Changing You, he said, we grab the phone, turn off the alarm, and immediately start clicking around for digital candy. And until the love and acceptance found in Christ become real to you, all the love and approval your screens offer you will never satisfy the hunger you feel inside. And there's so many other ways that these two things can look. And the first one is legalism. It's trying to earn God's favor and a right standing with God by our works. The other one's self-righteousness, or maybe maybe com more convicting name, it's helpful for me to call it this, is, is self-worship. Ultimately, what's driving me is not worship of God, it, it's worship of me. It's not love of Jesus, it's love of me. And so part of what protects us against gloating, like we talked about a minute ago, is seeing how prone we are to the same things even now. Uh, I, I pray that one of the ways that God would use this passage would be to wake us up to where we're falling into self-worship and, and legalism. And so if you're not a Christian and you're seeing now how you're pursuing the wrong goal by the wrong means, or, or if you are a Christian and you're seeing areas in your life where you're slipping into legalism or self-worship, like what do you do? How do you respond? Well, there's, there's two things on, left on your handout here. They really should be one. I don't know why in the world I separated them out on your handout. Like I, I can't, you can't talk about these two things separately. So we're going to put them together, um, even though they're two separate bullet points on your handout. So here's, here's, how you, here's what you do. Here's how you respond. You submit to God's righteousness, and you trust in Jesus. And so if, if you're not a Christian, submit to God's righteousness and trust in Jesus. Be humbled by God's righteousness, by his perfection, by his holiness, his perfect justice that can't let any sin go unpunished. Like, let that understanding of God's righteousness stop you in your tracks. Let it cause you to feel the impossibility of you ever being able to do anything to earn a right standing before God. Lay down everything you've been trying to earn your own righteousness with and cry out for his mercy. 
and trust in Jesus. Trust that because Jesus lived the perfect life that you failed to live, that he died in your place, satisfying God's wrath against you and paying the ransom price for you, that he rose from the dead, conquering death and becoming the firstborn of the new creation by putting all your hope in Jesus. God can declare you righteous. He gives you the righteousness you can't get any other way but by faith in Jesus. Uh, Listen to this from from Herman Bovink. This is so good. He says, The righteousness which justifies us, therefore, is not to be separated from the person and work of Christ. It does not consist of a material or spiritual gift with which Christ can grant us apart from himself, of which we can accept and receive apart from the person of Christ. There's no possibility of sharing the benefits of Christ without being in fellowship with the person of Christ. And the latter invariably brings the benefits with it. In order to stand before the judgment of God, to be acquitted of all the guilt and punishment, and to share in the glory of God in eternal life, we must have Christ. Not something of him, but Christ himself. We must possess him in the fullness of his grace and truth, according to his divine and human nature, in his humiliation and exaltation. The crucified and glorified Christ is the righteousness which God grants us through grace in the justification. And when God grants us this Christ together with all his benefits out of free grace, without any merit on our part, by way of faith, then he at the same time justifies us. He pronounces us free of all guilt and punishment and gives us the right to eternal life, to the heavenly glory, to his own blessed, never-ending fellowship, And then we can stand before his presence as though we had never had sin or done sin. Indeed, as though we had ourselves achieved the obedience which Christ has achieved for us. Like, oh, that is good news. Submit to God's righteousness and trust in Jesus and all that will be true for you. Like, you can do that right where you're sitting. And then please talk to me, talk to somebody else here before you leave. Love to help you with what to do next. So if that's you call you to, to, to repent and trust in Jesus in that way. Christians, for us, uh, all that stuff that I just read is already true of us. It's gloriously true of us. But the Christian life at the same time, it's a fight to continue to submit to God's righteousness and to trust in Jesus. Like those are both something that we do once and it's something we'll do every day for the rest of our lives. Uh, in his book, Gentle and Lowly, which if, you're not, if you haven't read that book, you need to get that book and read that book, Gentle and Lowly by Dane Ortland. He says, there are two ways to live the Christian life. You can either live it for the heart of Christ or from the heart of Christ. You can live for the smile of God or from it, for a new identity as a son or daughter of God or from it, for your union with Christ or from it. The battle of the Christian life is to bring your own heart into alignment with Christ's. That is, getting up each morning and replacing your natural orphan mindset with a mindset full of free adoption into the family of God through the work of Christ, your older brother, who loved you and gave himself for you out of the overflowing fullness of his gracious heart. Then he gives this illustration. He says, picture a 12-year-old boy growing up in a healthy, loving family. As he matures through no fault of his parents, he finds himself trying to figure out how to really assure himself a place in the family. One week, he tries to create a new birth certificate for himself. The next week, he determines to spend all his extra time scrubbing the kitchen clean. The following week, he determines to do all he can to imitate his dad. One day, his parents question his strange behavior. I'm just doing all I can to secure my my place in the family, guys. How would his father respond? Calm yourself, my dear son. There's nothing you could possibly do to earn your place among us. You're our son, period, period. 
You didn't do anything at the start to get into our family, and you can't do anything now to get out of our family. Live your life knowing your sonship is settled and irreversible. Oh, Christians, submit to the righteousness of God and trust in Christ in that sense. Like, Stop trying to earn your place in the family or earn your father's favor. Live your life knowing your sonship is settled and irreversible because of the work of Christ, your older brother, who loved you and gave himself for you. So practically, how do you do that? Well, the number one thing to do is preach the gospel to yourself. Remind yourself of God's righteousness and who you are in Christ. And, and this may sound like it contradicts everything I've been saying this morning, but, but this is where spiritual disciplines, like reading your Bible and, and me- memorizing and meditating on Scripture, praying, gathering with other believers for worship, taking the Lord's Supper like we're about to in a minute, all come into play. Like, we don't do any of those things to earn anything from God. We do them to remind ourselves who we are, and to stir our affections for Jesus so that we submit more and more to the righteousness of God and so we trust in Jesus more and more day by day by day. And so we're, we're starting a new year. Maybe now is a good time to evaluate how you're doing when it comes to those disciplines. Like, are you regularly spending time in the word and in prayer and in fellowship? And are you doing those things from a heart posture of trying to earn your own righteousness by works? Or are you doing them to remind yourself of who you are and to stir your affections for Jesus and to fix your eyes more and more on him? Like like Jesus is the culmination of God's one plan of salvation for everyone who believes. He's done for you what you could never do for yourself. He's given you what you could never earn for yourself. Submit to God's righteousness and trust in Jesus. Oh, I pray that God would stir your heart to do that uh, this morning. Would you pray with me? Father, this is, this is a tough passage. It's never fun to focus on the bad news side of things like this um, and, and how somebody failed and mistakes that they made. and hard to, hard to know what to take away from that in a lot of ways. But Lord, I pray that, that you would stir our hearts this morning with these things that these truths that we've just been talking about over the last several minutes would take root in our hearts. God, that those that are here this morning, that are, that are watching on the live stream or, or listening to this even later on, Lord, if they have never um, truly understood your righteousness and never truly submitted to your righteousness, if they've been seeking their own righteousness and pursuing their own righteousness by works, and never submitted to you, and never trusted in Christ, God, would you open their eyes even now to see that the righteousness they need, they can never earn on their own. They can never do enough. They can never reach the, the standard of perfection that, that is your holiness and your righteousness. And God, would, would you cause them to, to stop and to lay down everything that they've been working so hard to try to earn, and instead to put their, their faith and their trust in Jesus. Lord, I, I pray that some, even this morning, would do that. Um, Lord, you're sovereign over that. You're the only one that can take a dead heart, bring it to life, make them a vessel of your mercy. And so, Lord, would, would you sovereignly do that even this morning? And God, for those of us that are Christians that that have done that, that have submitted to your righteousness, that are trusting in Christ, God, would you protect us from some of these other things that we talked about? Lord, would you protect us from patting ourselves on the back and 
and gloating over those that haven't um, put their trust in Jesus. God, would you convict us and, and um, help us be more faithful in praying for salvation for them? And God, would you expose just in our hearts our own tendency towards self-righteousness and toward legalism to, to live now as if we have to continue to work to earn a place in, our, in your family instead of living as who we are. God, would you remind us of who we are in Christ? Would you remind us that our righteousness, our, the verdict has been, has been cast, like it's done, it's finished. We don't have to try to earn it anymore. Um, and, and in Christ, we have all of the blessings that, that we need and that we could ever receive. Um, it's like we sang earlier, what, what more is there now for heaven to give us? Um, God, I pray that we would truly believe that and that we would live from that confident assurance that, that we have all of that in Jesus and that we would grow day by day in our confidence and our faith and our trust in him. Lord, even just this morning as we get ready to take the Lord's Supper, I pray that that would be an act of faith, that we are part of your family, that we are in Christ, that all his blessings belong to us and we're partakers in them. And just remind us of that even as we take the Lord's Supper this morning. Thank you for your word. Thank you for the time to gather together and spend time in your word. I pray that you would um, do the work in our hearts that you sovereignly um, have chosen to do this morning. Um, through your word, in Jesus' name, amen.